0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Good luck turning to Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8. For the tragic uh, limitations of uh, hard copy paper technology. If you're sitting here with a single Bible, you're pretty well open, limited to one page at a time. You can get to three different places and kind of bookmark them a little bit with ribbons or fingers or bubblegum wrappers, things like that. But for the advantages of the technological age, you can tile your windows. You have the same Bible open as many windows as you want and uh, tile them and. Even have the uh, the Greek text underneath each English text Bible there. In any event, we are looking at episode thirty this morning: the raising of Jairus's daughter, uh, often referred to as a resurrection. I prefer to think of them as resuscitations or restorations to physical life. Uh, resurrection being eternal. That is, never to die again. That's true resurrection. Jesus Christ was the first, actually, to ever be resurrected. All three that we have records of in the Old Testament that were restored to life, then subsequently physically died later on, of course, um, and issues that are related to it there. Those that he, that Christ raised, including the widow's son at name we've already studied, uh, this one here being the uh, daughter of Jairus, the synagogue official. And then the third one. Who's the third one that Christ raised? Lazarus. There you go. All three of which were subject to physical death again later on, given the fact that what they were restored to was physical earthly life, not actually resurrected. The scripture says that Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead, that he was the very first resurrection and the guarantee of every other resurrection possible, at least according to 1 Corinthians 15. The basis for any resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, so Matthew 9. Actually, if you have to pick one passage, pick Mark. We're going to use Mark 5 as our basic text. Um, It is the longest of the developments. It is very parallel to Luke. The one that's the most divergent, it's the shortest, and also the most divergent in its details is Matthew's. And uh, we'll bring those details in as we uh, as we approach them. But I like Mark's because this woman with a hemorrhage uh, really went through it, and the doctors weren't any help. And Mark lays that out pretty clear. I think Dr. Luke dodges a little bit of it there about how pathetic the doctors were. Uh, Mark just lays it out and says, you know, the doctors were useless. She had this hemorrhage for 12 years, and now finally Christ... Uh, perform the miracle so that's uh that's where we'll be before we start any of this let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth shall we pray father we thank you for this day and the privilege we have once again to assemble together and to receive instruction we thank you for the faithfulness of your word how it is uh, always there father it is an ever-present help at all times uh, Father, we thank you that we can abide in the Word, even as we abide in Christ, that the Word abides in us, Father, and we are so rejoicing that, that uh, wherever we go in our travels and wherever we go in circumstances that we face, uh, the Word of God is hidden within our heart and becomes our resource then for application. We ask for your blessing upon our study today, the setting aside of distractions, and Father, uh, taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus, we thank you in his most precious and holy name, amen. All right, get our slideshow up and running here as well. This is episode 30 in the Galilean ministry, remembering, of course, that the numbers restart with each section of the ministry. Uh, So we had different numbering systems for the uh, birth and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. We had a different numbering set for the uh, early ministry of the baptizer and the co-ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, now we're in the third main division. Really the, the longest of the divisions is the Galilean ministry where most of the miracles took place, where the significant discourses took place like Sermon on the Mount and uh, the Matthew 13 parables. The, uh, we will have coming up, though, once the Galilean ministry is over, we will have the, uh, Judea, uh, the Perean ministry and then ultimately the last Judean ministry coming up as the crucifixion approaches. All right. Jairus' daughter raised in the healing of a woman with a hemorrhage. This appears to be really two events, but we want to handle them at the same time because they are, they are linked. They are linked in, in a powerful way. And all three Gospels are unanimous on this, that uh, Jairus approaches him, and he agrees to go to Jairus' house, and it's on the way to Jairus' house that this other woman enters the picture. Uh, that miracle is then accomplished. He has words for that other woman. And then he resumes the, the travels to Jairus' house where he restores the daughter to physical life. All right? Any questions? That's, that's it. That's the whole, the whole episode. There's a lot of details on the way, though, so we'll take the time to do that. But all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all make it very clear that these incidents are linked. And uh, uh, the healing of this woman, the hemorrhage lady, uh, the healing here is on the way to restore... Uh, the daughter, the little 12 year old girl, to physical life. All right, six things we're going to glean out of this. Let me just read. Tell you what, I had you go to Mark 5. Let me read the Matthew account straight through because it is the shortest. Matthew chapter 9, and it's also uh, not in the same sequence that Mark and Luke put it in. We've discussed this many times. We're not worried about the divergent details between the different gospel accounts. We expect divergent details from true, legitimate eyewitness accounts. We'd be very suspicious if the accounts were word-for-word identical. We'd be led to conclude that there was some collusion going on, and they doctored their stories to make them identical. So we're really relaxed about the stories being divergent in particular detail. So reading from Matthew 9, verse 18, When he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him, literally worshipped him, uh, the proscaneto term that Glenn Carnegie was introducing us to Sunday night, and said, My daughter has just died, uh, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house, he saw and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder uh, you know I'm a big fan of noisy disorder, don't you? And, of course, this is one of the verses that gives me my scriptural basis for appreciating noisy disorder as uh, much as I do. Uh, so he comes into the house and he sees the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. He said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep, and they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. So there's nine verses. Matthew's account has nine verses. Uh, Mark's account has 23 verses. It's the longest of the accounts. Luke's um, 17 verses. And uh, Luke's verses tend to be longer than other people's verses. So the material is fairly well comparable between Mark and Luke. So, uh, the six points of study we're going to glean, let's just, in the first one, I've kind of fallen into this habit, and I probably should have done this earlier in our series, uh, but use the first point of study to at least indicate the nature of the divergent accounts and which one we're primarily going to study. So, under point one, Mark's account is the fullest. So, this outline will follow his record with supplementary information from Matthew and Luke. Mark's account is the fullest. As we pointed out, 23 verses worth. So uh, this outline will follow his record with supplementary information. In other words, we'll bring in the added details out of Matthew and out of Luke. You will notice as we turn to Mark 5 now and we start to examine these other gospel records, you're going to notice a few things immediately. Uh, For example, when when, uh, Jairus shows up in Matthew's account, he says, My daughter has just died when he shows up in Mark and Luke's account, the quotation, and we've discussed the nature of quotations before, the statement that he makes is that my daughter is on the verge of death. She's about to die. You must come quickly. And it's interesting the distinction between my daughter just died or my daughter is about to die. Uh, Some distinctions that we really draw more often in English than in other such languages. I think Augustine gave probably the most accurate harmonization of these two when he recorded that uh one phrase was the, were the words of his lips and the other phrase was the words of his heart that he uh, was was that he knew in his heart that his daughter was dead by the time it took him to travel from his house to find the lord that he knew in his heart that the girl was dead but he couldn't bring himself to actually voice that and said you've got to hurry she is uh she is near death so far as that goes Alright, right, also, under point two, we put the context for this. With the evangelist formerly known as Legion, commissioned on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples returned to the Capernaum side. We want to put this episode in its context with what immediately preceded it. Remember, we dealt with it in the last two weeks. He had crossed the sea, he had gone to the eastern side. What was he doing over there? Most of his Galilean ministry was... In Galilee (laughs) but for the episode we just finished over the past two weeks they got in a boat and they crossed to the other side they crossed to the eastern side they crossed to the non-Galilean side they crossed to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee all right and they didn't spend a whole lot of time over there did they it seems that they were there for one purpose and one purpose only And that was to cast out the demons, to address Legion, to uh, go through the material we went through in the last couple of weeks, and to see him then engaging in his ministry. And so in the context here of Mark 5, even before we start reading uh, verses 21 and following, we notice the aftermath of the Legion episode in verse 19 and in verse 18 as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed. That's how Mark records it. The man who had been demon-possessed. I call him the evangelist, uh, formerly known as Legion. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Uh, wanting to come back on the on the return trip journey. Wanting to return to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Wanting to travel with the Savior of the universe. Uh, but you can imagine, here is a... Here is a, uh, how, how unclean is this guy, right? Uh, if you stop to consider all the things that could make him unclean in Jewish eyes, well, Gentile, first of all, is a, is a non-starter. Uh, but look how long he lived in the cemeteries. If you touch anything that's dead, even for legitimate purposes, burying a family member leaves you ritually unclean. Um, we know what his diet consisted of because we know the animals that were, that were there. There were great her, uh, herds of, of swine in that region. So, plus he was a demoniac. And it's remarkable. Legalists have a hard time separating former activities from present circumstances. And so they would look at this former demoniac and what would be the first thing they think? Yeah, he's a demoniac. Right. And they would do the same thing. And how many times in Scripture do we have this? We have Rahab the harlot, for example. Or was that more accurately Rahab the former harlot? But even if she gives up that way of life, she's going to carry the stigma forever, isn't she? Of course, I blow people's socks off when I tell them my Bible doesn't say it's Rahab the former harlot. (laughs) You know, as far as my Bible records, that was her occupation. And it doesn't record... You know, didn't say that she was a former harlot or reformed or gave it up or whatever. The house where those spies were hiding—guess what kind of house it was? Well, we're told what kind of house it was. In any event, people get kind of shocked over little things. Um, but here's this evangelist, and he's put to work. He is a Gentile, and he's going to have ministry here to these other. Gentiles, So with the uh, evangelist formerly known as Legion commissioned on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples returned to the Capernaum side. So he's imploring him that he might accompany him. Then we read in verse 19, he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. He's commissioned in his own realm. And we want to start to realize that uh, competing ministries are not competing ministries. <laughs> We're all working towards the same goal when it comes to uh, the furtherance of the kingdom, and when it comes to obedience to the Father's plan and, and all the rest. So that sets the stage then for the return. Now, we read in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again, now it's return trip back to the western side, uh the, the name Capernaum by the way does not appear in this text but we understand that because of where he departed from where his home of operations was located and also where uh cities on the western shore that were likely to have had synagogues in their day uh I don't think there's really any question that Capernaum is the, is the most likely setting here for this event so when he crossed over again in the boat to the other side a large crowd gathered around him and so he stayed by the seashore And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. So we're introduced now to the episode in the third point of study. The growing crowds kept Jesus near the water, but Jairus sought him out. The growing crowds kept Jesus near the water, but Jairus sought him out. We're starting to see more and more of this. The reason why they crossed the sea in the first place was because when he'd finished the the one message that he had, when he was delivering those parables and he was sitting in a boat and the crowds were on the seashore, rather than try to get out of the boat and go to the seashore and and, and actually stay there in Peter's home or his mother-in-law's home or wherever he had a place to stay there in Capernaum, uh, he just said, hey, look, just pull up the anchor and let's, let's get out of here. And they did that. See, so we had this... Um, if you take it the context all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 35, I think you'll notice that that uh, in verses 35 and 36 that he never even got out of the boat once the the kingdom of heaven parables were done and they just pulled up anchor and sailed to the other side of the shore. Now, hopefully these things will be, I don't know that they'll be immediately applicable for us, but... These are kind of the passages that are floating through my mind as we continue to see more and more families added to Austin Bible Church, as we continue to see uh, the, the training ministry start to gain more traction, we start to see other things take place. How do we respond when the demands of ministry start to become overwhelming, when we're being pulled all these different directions and and it seems that everything is crashing down? Are we Are we in danger of... Losing things. Are we in danger of missing ministry opportunities? Are we in danger of losing track of people and having things fall through the cracks? See, um, well, these passages can be encouraging because the Lord didn't miss out. Ministry opportunities found him in different ways, such as Jairus seeking him out, such as this woman seeking him out. And the relaxed mental attitude that the Lord demonstrates in The things that he knows about and the things that he doesn't know about. These are realms that uh, I'll continue to pray over and and dwell on, but I'm finding encouragement in them because this one episode actually is like a two-sided coin. There's the ministry he knows about. He's on his way to get there to minister to, to either heal that girl or restore her to life and so forth. But on the way there, this other thing comes along. This anonymous woman, we don't even know her name. This anonymous woman comes in, and without him even knowing about it, she reaches out and touches his clothes. And power comes out of him. And the miracle's done. See, remembering, of course, that Jesus Christ in his humanity is limiting himself. He's not exercising omniscience. He doesn't know, in his humanity, he doesn't know who touched him. He just knows that miraculous power was, uh, was expelled and so he starts looking around to say, who did that? Who did that? On what basis can divine power be appropriated, see, without his conscious knowledge that it was taking place? So, the ministry he knows about, the ministry he doesn't know about are taking place. And this episode, I think, is very instructive for these things that I'm discussing, because as we pursue the ministry in terms of local church, in terms of Austin Bible Church, in terms of things going on, we may be completely clueless for different things. But who's really in charge anyway? Can we have a relaxed mental attitude because of that? See, and probably it's good that more stays secret than not. Otherwise, we'd get a big fat head. We would get prideful and, and all impressed with what we're doing. See, so keep these things in mind. I'm just kind of giving some generalized introductions here, but keep these things in mind. Uh, not only the conscious ministry where he knew what he was doing and why he was doing it in obedience to the Father's plan, going to jairus's house and restoring her to physical life, was the Father's will, and Christ knew it, and he went there and he did it. But then the other things that he didn't know about, there's still the Father's will, or the miracle wouldn't have happened, the, the power wouldn't have launched forth, and this woman with the hemorrhage wouldn't have been healed. But Jesus, in his humanity, didn't realize what was happening at the time and only found out afterwards what this woman had done when she touched him, when she touched his clothes. So um, we can draw that same application as well. If if we're not aware that it's happening, does that mean it's not happening? (laughs) No, it's happening. See, and think of the countless Bible classes where the word's being taught, the the, power is going forth. Does the pastor know every single way that it's bearing fruit? Of course not. Because 80 people hear a message, they scatter 80 different directions throughout the week, and, and fruit gets born, and, and the Word gets applied, and, and Christ is glorified, and, and uh, the, the human teacher involved in teaching that doctrine is completely clueless as to how it got applied and how Christ was glorified and how the power became effective and, and what exactly it did, which is, again, uh, another good thing so the growing crowds kept jesus near the water but jairus sought him out and these are the things i think we want to be able to keep in perspective so first of all we can realize that that the growing crowds are not something to brag about or or get full of yourself with i think that john the baptist disciples were really starting to get those hang-ups when they were coming to john the baptist and saying you know that guy's getting more crowds than you are and john the baptist in john chapter 3 said hey A man can receive nothing unless it has been granted to him by the Father. He must increase. I must decrease. John had a wonderful male attitude about the numbers dwindling. He said, great. I'm glad the numbers are dwindling. In fact, I'm kind of discouraged. I still got you guys. What are you doing here? (laughs) Why are you following the forerunner when he's right there? That's the Christ. That's the one I was sent to, to, to proclaim. What are you hanging around me for? So, the numbers if they if they come great, stay faithful if they if they dwindle, great, stay faithful. The father's in charge of that. if you're feeling overwhelmed, stay faithful. Father knows you're overwhelmed, he knows that you got the numbers you got, he knows you got the capacity to handle it, or he wouldn't have sent you those numbers, and so forth, and you can trust that the work that he wants for you to do will find you. He will find you. He will not allow his purpose to be thwarted because you're getting your head spinning and you can't keep track of all the details. Jairus seeks him out. This woman seeks him out. Jesus isn't falling short anything he's expected to do on this day or any other day. And we can trust the same thing too in our ministries. So here comes Jairus. Now he's called a ruler of the synagogue uh, or a synagogue official. That's how the New American Standard renders it. A synagogue official. Anybody here ever been to a synagogue? Do you know how synagogues work? No. And even if you knew how synagogues worked today, do you know how synagogues worked in the first century? Well, it's called an archi-synagogos. And the archi... No, it's not from the song that Noah built the archi-archi. I've come to kind of despise that song, but I really liked it when I was a kid. The Archie is our our rulership term. Let's get rid of blue. If you think arch archdiocese, if you think archbishop, if you think the arch you know the archbishop is the ruling bishop, he rules over the other bishops. Uh, a lot of your arch. Terms, uh, sometimes it's not a prefix, sometimes it's a suffix. An ethnarch, for example, is a ruler of an ethnos, of a, of a people or a, a race. Um, archangel, there is another one, thank you. Uh, there's other terms. But So you have ark and then in front of synagogos. Now, synagogue isn't even really an English word or even, I guess it's a Greek word, but it's a, it's a compound. We, when we render it in English as synagogue, we're not translating synagogos; we're transliterating synagogos. We're just taking these Greek letters, making our U a Y there and calling it S-Y-N-A-G. You can, you can see the O-G. You can see synagogue right there if you just simply transliterate those Greek words. Ago means to lead. To lead or to bring. That's Ago, to lead or to bring. And so, if you have been brought together, soon, your prefix soon or soon, like sympathy, right? We have our pathies are together. I have a pathos, you have a pathos, together we have soon pathos. Our pathoses are together, so we're mutually pathetic, we are Sympathetic, That's, or synchronize soon with chronos for time. I have a chronos, you have a chronos. Our, our chronologies come together and they are soon synchronized. All right. Well, here's sunago. Sunago means we've gathered together. And in the Bible, a sunago, we might be just gathered together for, ultimately a synagogue is a place where they've gathered together for Bible study. We'd be very comfortable with a synagogue, given our mindset in assembling for instruction. The synagogue was developed by the Jews when they didn't have a temple. They're living in in exile. They're living in Babylon. The temple's destroyed. They can't uh, bring an animal sacrifice. They can't worship Yahweh. They can't observe the feast. They can't function according to their Old Testament scriptures. So what do they do? Well, hey, let's just get together and we'll have a Bible study. We'll have a, a prayer meeting. Very similar to what we'd be comfortable with today. And so people would rise to prominence, not because they were of a priestly line, not because they, uh, they were Levitical, not because they had uh, a legitimate right to serve in the temple. They, they rose to prominence because they became scholars. They became experts in Bible study. They became teachers. They became experts in the law. By the time we get to uh, the Gospels, they're called lawyers. They're called scribes. They're called Pharisees. So, anyway, we've got the Archie, Sunagogas. It's an official that rules. And as far as ruling is concerned, um, he takes care of the physical arrangements. And, and don't be confused by the term physical arrangements. He's not just simply a deacon uh, who makes sure that the, there's enough chairs and that the air conditioning's running uh, or that the heater's running or what have you. Uh, the physical arrangements being the order of the service, being who's going to read. The scripture, who is going to lead the prayer, who is going to offer the hymn, who's to, the various elements of the synagogue service. This man not only ordered them, the order became more or less fixed over time, but then designated which person was going to be doing which part, playing which role in the uh, in the overall service. Now there are many synagogue officials in the Gospels, three of which uh, we know by name. Jairus, we know by name because of this episode. Crispus and Sosthenes, we know because of Acts 18. So let's go to Acts 18. We'll take a quick peek at them. And And by the way, I don't think it's accidental that in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, these synagogue officials are getting saved. Because of the nature of who they are, they are Bible students. They are those that are carefully studying their, their Bible, which for them was Genesis to Malachi, the, the the law, the writings, and the prophets. And and by putting it all together and comparing Scripture with Scripture, they were coming to have an understanding about who this coming Messiah was going to be. And then when the Christ was revealed, I, I don't find it coincidental that if they have positive volition to God's Word in the first place, that uh, that they're going to identify Jesus as the coming Christ, the ones that had the biggest hang ups were those that abandoned their Bible study for the the political connections. Those that got involved in the legalism of the of the the machine rather than the basics of the Bible study, and that's why most of the Pharisees were blinded to the whole to the whole reality of who Christ was. But in, in Acts chapter eighteen, we've got a couple of these guys here, and if I could just spot them real quickly. Uh, he left Athens and he comes to Corinth and um He's going to settle there. And because he has been separated from Titus, uh, from uh, Silas and Timothy, he ends up, he has to do some tent making. And uh, literally, he is a tent maker. That's why we today we call it tent making, regardless of what your career is. When I was working in the jail, that was tent making. Uh, Todd Kennedy is a, a veterinarian. That's called tent making. Uh, uh, whatever you do outside the church for income is called tent making these days because that's what Paul did when he was working outside the ministry to Bring in the the needed funds, and uh, so this took place here in Corinth. That's where he met Priscilla and Aquila. Wouldn't you know it? They were also tent makers. There's a coincidence for you. See, God put these tent makers in Paul's periphery, so that not only could they have earthly careers together, but uh, they became great ministers in their own in their own right. But we notice Crispus is introduced here in verse eight. Um, you'll notice though, in verse seven. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Well, there's a coincidence. A born-again believer, a church-age believer, a member of the church, part of the Bride of Christ, and he happens to live next door to the synagogue. where you got a lot of Jews who, had, who were looking forward still to the coming Messiah, but had not yet identified that Jesus is not just the coming Messiah. He is the one who came, who accomplished the work of salvation. And so Crispus... The leader of the synagogue, the Archie Synagogos of Corinth, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so it had that domino effect because Crispus was so respected. He was a synagogue leader. He was a teacher. He was an expert in the things of the, the Bible that he knew about, which was the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, and now he has come to accept this Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, and he's coming to accept the ministry of the apostles as legitimate, starting to accept um, the, the Greek scriptures as they were starting to be written, the New Testament, and uh, the influence he has is is uh, coming in the, uh, to fruit in the lives of these other people, coming to say, you know what, uh, this is true. They were becoming believers because of that. So Crispus is mentioned here. Um, Anyway, this will then result in much conflict, which is described here. They, uh, in verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the bema, brought him before the judgment seat. And in fact, we've even got photos we're looking at now for the uh, the new judgment seat of Christ book, and we've got uh, the 2,000 years later the the ruins of that Bema are still visible and there's some wonderful photographs of uh of this very verse we're looking at uh later on though down in verse 17 we've got another synagogue leader uh so we read here in verse uh yeah the galio didn't care he was not sympathetic he basically he blew them off he says i don't care none of my business Uh, He says, look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Basically, he just threw them out of his court. He says, this is a religious spat you you Jews are having with those guys, and, and I don't want to be any part of it. Get out of here. So they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Who cares? Doesn't bother me any. Okay? We looked at that verse, by the way, in our recent completed study on caring where you can have a non-caring attitude for entirely the wrong reasons. Now, early in the chapter, Crispus was the archi-synagogos. Later in the chapter, now Sosthenes is the archi-synagogos. You start to wonder, well, how did that happen? See, you realize that these synagogues had to keep replacing their leaders. Every time one of them got saved, they'd get thrown out of the synagogue. Get out of here, you heretic. And they would lift up somebody else to become the leader of the synagogue. Those faithful Jews who, of course, wanted to study their law of Moses. They wanted to study their their law and their writings and their prophets. And they, they were going to hold fast to the fact that, that Jesus' guy was a heretic and he was crucified for his blasphemy and all of that. And so every time a synagogue official got saved, he was thrown out and they replaced him. And then he got saved. <laughs> Your goodness, what's going on here? <laughs> what do we got to do? So, uh got to start beating them. Let's set an example. Let's see if we can discourage any more of this foolishness. You know, if you're going to follow after Christ, you're going to pay a price as far as these Jews are concerned. And, you, and, you know, you have to wonder, if people had to make that decision. Am I going to believe in the truth, even if there's a beating that I have to endure because of that? Or am I going to look at that beating and say, no, I don't want any part of that. But at least by looking at it, you realize Sosthenes believed it. Crispus believed it. These men had a testimony no matter what the price was, and it becomes, uh, it becomes interesting. And as I point out, when you turn to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you find out that Sosthenes is listed as a co author of that book. That when Paul wrote his epistle to the Corinthians, he listed Sosthenes in the greeting in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 1. All right, so that's who Jairus is. I'm getting back now to Mark 5. Jairus is an archisunagogos. Typically, uh, you know, these weren't public buildings. Uh, generally speaking, you could become an archiepiscopus if you built the thing, <laughs> if you funded it, if it was in your house, then you're the you're the It's your house; you can throw them out, kind of thing. Not in every case. In some cases, funds were donated by a generous benefactor. Uh, we're told even in Capernaum that there was a centurion who was so. Uh, much of a God-fearer that respected the the God of the Jews, that he helped to fund a uh, particular synagogue. So, in any event, that's Jairus. Who is Jairus? And point B, Jairus is the English. Gyros is the Greek. Not really a Greek name, anyway. It's a Hebrew name. In the Old Testament, we're familiar with Jair. J-A-I-R. The Hebrew is Yair. Yair. Number 2971 is the Hebrew Strong's number. 2383 is the Greek Strong's number for Yairos. But Yairas isn't a Greek name. It's just simply taking a Hebrew name and giving it Greek letters. Who God enlightens. Whom God enlightens. And you can't get that etymologically from the Greek. But in Hebrew, or first year hebrew student back row or is light and you tack yah in front of it there's your yah yah being a abbreviation or a short uh term for yahweh jehovah and so yahweh or, or yahweh ear yah ear I think rather than whom God enlightens, I'd rather render it whom Yahweh enlightens. Let's keep the Yahweh title distinct from the general term Elohim, the general term for God. So, Yahir, whom God enlightens. In other words, parents naming their children Jer are trying to encourage them to understand that if they're going to be enlightened, it's going to come from the Lord. That they're not going to obtain earthly wisdom or they're not going to trust in earthly wisdom. That they're going to trust... and the Lord and lean not on their own understanding. So Jer is a wonderful name. Remembering, of course, that the most wonderful names in the world are the wishful thinking of parents who uh, give those names to their children. You know, for all we know, you know, nine Jer's out of ten can grow up to be blithering idiots that don't pay attention to God's word. In which case they they have a, a wonderful name, but they never live up to it. I find it remarkable. What was the what was the godly name that God that David gave to, to uh, Solomon? You know, Solomon had another name and he was given that name at birth. The sad part is, is that he, it only appears in that one verse and he never goes back to that name and he never makes use of that name. He accepts the name Solomon, he accepts the name, uh, you know, for peace, uh, Shalom, and never embraces the name Jedidiah uh, that should have been his intimate name with Yahweh, see. And so instead of the wonderful wisdom we could have learned from the blessed king, uh, Jedidiah, we have the tragic ending, sin unto death, destruction of the idiot that abandoned wisdom, married a thousand women, and and tried to pursue things through human effort and and, uh, human viewpoint. Likewise here with Jer. Um, we, We know three particular Jer's by name. There must have been any number of other ones. In Numbers 32 and verse 41, we have one particular Jer. Numbers 32.41, the one in Esther is kind of in passing uh, because the the verse in Esther two five is making reference to Mordecai, the son of Jer. <laughs> so Mordecai's dad was named Jer, and that's about all we know about that guy because the book of Esther is about Mordecai. It's not about Mordecai's dad. But in Numbers 32.41, we're told about a leader here. Um, Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he lived in it. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, a tremendous hero. Remember, they were given the land on the west side of the Jordan, but before they entered it, Manasseh, remember two and a half tribes, said, you know something, Um, we've got a lot of cattle, we've got a lot of of, of livestock, and this part here east of the Jordan is is, uh, more suited to our cattle than the land to the west of the Jordan so if we if we forsake any land allotments on the west of the Jordan can we take a land allotment here on the east of the Jordan and Joshua gave him permission said okay that's you know you're between the, the river of Egypt and the great river Euphrates It's still part of the Abrahamic land grant it's not on the western side of Jordan but that's okay it's on the eastern side under permissive well sure here you go he says the only deal is of course you're still going to come fight the wars with us on the western side of Jordan and when the wars are done then you can go back to the eastern side and take this land so they made that agreement, and they were fine with that. And it's interesting, though, when it comes to actually conquering that land, Jer was a significant hero in those, uh, in those battles. Jer, the son of Manasseh, went and took its towns and called them Havoth Jer. You know, if you conquer the towns, you get to name them after yourself, the uh, villages of Jer. And then Noba went, and he took uh, these regions, and he got to call them after his name. And so forth. Yeah, you'll notice there's not a lot of villages out there named after Bob because I haven't gotten around to conquering them yet. I intend to at some point, I just haven't gotten there yet. In Judges 10, we're introduced to another Jair. Judges 10, verses 3 through 5. Um, given that this guy shows up in the book of Judges, who do you think this guy was? Yeah, he was a judge. <laughs> All right, Judges 10. After Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, rose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. After him, Jer. Notice Jer, the Gileadite. Gilead was that region that the first Jer had conquered and named after him. And so he's uh, named or he has the namesake of that first Jer. But here's another Jer, the Gileadite. He arose and he judged Israel 22 years. See, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havoth-Jer to this day. And Jer died and was buried in Caimon. Some have tried to identify the two Jers as one and the same. I I don't think the timing is right. I think there's too many years in between that uh, the Jer who conquered, who named it Havoth-Jer is the namesake for this one. And I think the title, Jair the Gileadite, is a good giveaway, too. The other guy was Jair from Manasseh. This is Jair the Gileadite. I think they're two separate Jairs. Anyway, 30 sons on 30 donkeys. There's a good story, I wonder. (laughs) You know, a part of me, of course, understands that polygamy is not God's directive will. The polygamy under permissive will was allowed and it wasn't the most ideal. In fact, it brought around hardship and so forth. Uh, every time you see Jacob's polygamy or every time you see Abraham's polygamy or you see when it creeps up David's polygamy, there's problems every time. So I'm not in favor of polygamy. But you wonder about Mrs. Jer. <laughs> did Did she have all 30 of those babies? Bless her heart. <laughs> you know, in some ways, I kind of hope there's more than one Mrs. Jair, at least for the sake of the 30 sons on the 30 donkeys. And, uh, and in, in other instances, you, you got to wonder, was there, were there multiple wives involved? He kind of almost hoped so. All right. So, Jairus. Jairus is the synagogue official in Capernaum. Now, he has a daughter. We don't even know her name. His daughter, he calls her Thugatrion, which is a diminutive of Thugater. In Matthew and in Luke, she's called a Thugater. She's called a daughter. But in Mark's record, he calls her his little daughter. And the term there is the diminutive form of daughter. It's Thugatrion. We do the same thing. Every language has diminutive forms. We have a, a diminutive form for different terms, and it just simply means smaller. Um, you know, you can have, uh, and we have other terms that, that can be superlative forms that are, you know, much larger forms than, uh, than the standard one. Anyway, this is a diminutive form for daughter. And so it's little daughter, my baby daughter, my little girl. Say, Zoe will always be my baby daughter. Doesn't matter. When she's 30 and married, she's still going to be my baby daughter. Because that's who she is. And for Jairus, though, he calls her his thugatrion. And we have uh, such tenderness in this. Uh, and, and this is noteworthy because we have to separate ourselves from our culture. Put ourselves back in the first century. How, how esteemed and valued were daughters? Not very much. Not very much at all. Uh, A daughter was only esteemed insofar as she was the instrument for an arranged marriage that would improve your position in the clan, in the the tribe, or in the nation, and so forth. Uh, If you were looking to advance your family's position within the clan, or your clan's position within the tribe, or your tribe's position within the nation, or what have you, if you were trying to marry up to where your family would have Better connections and better resources and better uh, political uh, positioning, then daughters could get you there. Of course, along with your daughter had to come a very, very uh, well-stocked and funded dowry. Because the the husband that you're trying to marry that daughter to, well, he's, he's of a higher station. And he's got other... There's others that are interested in his boy. And others, and he's thinking about moving up himself. So why would he marry off his son to someone lower on the food chain? Or on the social chain, say. He really wouldn't want to, unless he had to. Unless he was kind of in a tough spot himself in terms of marrying up. Say. So the idea of marrying up versus marrying down, the idea of the value that a daughter would hold, we have a hard time relating to this because this is not our culture. This is not our practice. We no longer have arranged marriages, but I'm considering it. <laughs> At least with arranged marriages, you have control over the the thug that she brings home. Um, daughters were not valued in the ancient world. Any more so than the rest of your livestock. Your sheep and your goats and your other possessions and the things that you could barter with and trade and, and whatnot. See? Because everything was wrapped up in the boys. To this day, it continues to be that way in Muslim countries. I saw that when I was in Saudi Arabia in uh Kuwait, Iraq, Bahrain, every uh, Middle East country I went to. The dad had a pickup truck. In the cab of the truck was him and his boys. In the bed were the sheep, the goats, and the women. Wives and daughters, all veiled up, of course, but lugged in the back of the bed, open bed, pickup truck, with the sheep, the goats, and the women. So, for Jairus, we observe a tenderness. We observe a uh, really two terms. The thugatrion is the first term. The second term that highlights how precious this is is that she is an only begotten. And the language here of only begotten daughter is the precise parallel to only begotten son. Monogonese. Monogonese. God so loved the world that he gave his monogonase. Jairus so loves his daughter. She is the monogonase. In fact, there's no difference between the masculine and feminine endings. The form of monogonase is monogonase. Whether it's for the monogonase hios, son, or here with Thugater in Luke 8.42, she's called the monogonase. And monogonase is the one of a kind, the one and only, the unique. Monos meaning only, and genos meaning kind. The only of its kind, the one of a kind. See, Abraham had nine sons, but Isaac was his monogamous. Isaac was his only, was his monogamous son, rendered only begotten in the King James. We're stuck with 300 years of, of uh, King James language in, in respect to only begotten son. But the idea of begotten, we want to think instead of begotten, we want to think kind because this is not from ganao to beget, to bear forth, to, to give birth to. This is genos in terms of kind. In your, in your biology classes, when, we, when you classify different things into kingdom, order, phylum, genus, species. Remember that? Remember the classifications of animals, classifications of plants, classifications, the scientific classifications of things. The reason why, the last two are genus and species, That genus, coming from the Latin, but it comes from the Greek, coming from genos, coming from kind. Realizing, of course, that we're talking about earthly science when we talk about some of those classifications. But the nature of God's design when he populated this world with plants and animals is that everything reproduced after its kind, after its genos. And so here is a monogenos. Something of which there is no other of its kind. For God the Father, there is no other of its kind. There is no other God the Son in whom he has been eternally well pleased. For Abraham, there is no other son of his kind. He had nine sons. Ishmael he had from from, uh, Hagar. And Keturah gave him seven more sons after the death of Sarah. But Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the miracle baby. Isaac was the son of his uh re-vigorated sexual life after years of sexual death. Isaac was the son of promise to the elderly Sarah in the deadness of her womb. Isaac was the one of a kind. He wasn't the only begotten. He was one of nine sons. So you see why only begotten, and yet the Scripture calls Isaac the only begotten son. Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham, by faith, offered up his monogenes, one of a kind. And so the term, beyond just the diminutive thugatrion that shows tenderness, the concept of monogenes, the only begotten, is extraordinary. Because he is on the verge of losing his only begotten. And he comes to the only begotten of God the Father. And trust me, the love of the Father for the only begotten is very much on the mind of Jesus Christ throughout His earthly ministry. When He raised the widow's son at Nain, remember that story? You know, that boy was an only begotten. Likewise here. The only begotten. We also notice she was 12 years old. She was 12 years old. Is that number jumping out at you at all? We'll come back to this. Let's, we still got some time, and I'm gonna—I'm a, I'm a legalist. So I'm gonna go late because I started late. The um, as we read here in, in further down in chapter five, look at verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. <gasps> hmm. Good thing that daughter wasn't thirty years old. <laughs> you wonder how long would that woman have suffered the 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 linking between the 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 seemingly disconnected miracle on the way and the miracle once he got there is extraordinary. Twelve years this girl's twelve years old. This woman suffered from the hemorrhage for twelve years. I think some of the uh some of the perspective that can get placed on things particularly age is a good way to do it particularly at younger ages what, when you when you think of children and the things they're faced with the tests they face are they, are they are they big deals yeah to them they are yeah to them they're huge to them they're absolutely huge but with an adult perspective you look back on it was it really all that big of a deal? Of course not. It was a child's test for a child's frame of reference for a child's application. And because the child passed that test in victory, applying the word of God, they were equipped to handle bigger and bigger tests. And hopefully, by the time they become adults, they're equipped to handle adult testing. Because they've been trained to handle the the childhood testing along the way. But something to keep in mind, particularly in youth, when you're in your 20s, when you're in your 30s, when you're in your 40s, and so forth, this girl and whatever problem she has, it's really her parents testing more than her testing, but she's sick, she dies. But stop to consider, she's 12 years old. Here's another believer that's had a test for 12 years. Say, uh, 37 years old. You've got brothers and sisters out there that have had tests for 37 years. Sarah was 90. When she had her baby. How long was she tested? <laughs> right? You figure she was probably 12 when she got married. 11, 12. They got married that age back then. would imagine my 12-year-old getting married. But a 12-year-old got married. Okay? Did it all the time. Here she is 90. She's been married nearly 80 years. And the, the, the scorn... The, the, the ridicule, the low self-esteem, the idea that she's not having children. Abraham's sisters-in-law are having children. You know, here comes Lot and the whole gaggle of knuckleheads from uh, Abraham's brothers. And uh, Sarah's not having any children. So these tests, and they last, and they last, and they last, and they last. How long are they going to last? Well, what's the father's purpose for testing you? If it's a significant purpose, I would suspect that it's a significant duration of the testing. So, keeping these things in mind, this girl is 12 years old, but this woman's been tested for 12 years. Different thing. It's, 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 a, it's a humility perspective is what it is. An absolute humility perspective. If, if I'm ever on the verge of some kind of self-pity party or other idiot thing like that, I love the... the opportunity that i have to pick up a phone and call somebody a pastor friend that's been a pastor for 50 years or a pastor for 60 years and i'm reminded you know what this guy's been a pastor longer than i've been alive <laughs> what am i whining about see a pastor coming up on his 50th anniversary of being a pastor in uh... This church in kansas so they only have three pastors that, but they're a young church got started 100 years ago. They had their 100th anniversary in 1998, because they got founded in 1898. They've had three pastors during those 100 years, including the current pastor, who's coming up on his uh, 50th anniversary in, in 2008. He could count this year, really, because in 1946, no, 1956, he started as an assistant pastor. But it wasn't for two years later in 1958 that he became the senior pastor. So that's what he's counting for his 50th anniversary, his 2008, rather than count this year. I mean, if it was me, I'd be counting this year. <laughs> I'd count those two years where I was an assistant. Goodness, if you're that close to 50. In any event, this girl, 12 years old. This woman, 12 years of testing. All right. Appreciate that. Somebody waited until 1102 because they had respect for the Word of God. And then I went and blew it by preaching past the top of the hour. That's my fault. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. I thank You for Your faithfulness. I thank You, Father, for the lessons that we're learning, not only the lessons of Jairus and his love for his daughter, Father, but uh, this woman and her faith to reach out and touch Christ and to knowing that he was the source of healing, knowing that he was the uh, object of faith. And she appropriated that power for herself. And Father, I thank you that we have the same opportunity to appropriate power for ourselves. We do so through prayer. We do so because Christ is the object of our faith. And Father, I pray that we would come to learn these lessons, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.